0: So, this evening I would like to sketch what might be called a phenomenology of meditation. Uh, And by that I mean trying to give a picture of, well, how does meditation appear to us? What does it look like? The term meditation and equally the term Zen or Vipassana um are widely used uh, mindfulness even more so. and um, I think often we can lose sight of the bigger picture in which these practices take place. And I'd like to start with a with a story concerning uh, an episode that happened quite often in our monastery in Korea. Uh, This was a place called Songwangsa, and it um, is almost classically beautiful and isolated as Zen monasteries should be. In other words, it's about two miles from the nearest village, in the middle of a circle of hills. Um, There's no airplanes flying overhead. It is completely uh, just pristine nature and the Zen hall um, the one in which the foreigners or the foreign monks used to sit could take about 14, 16 people. It was heated by wood fire underneath. There was no machinery, no uh, sounds of air heating systems clicking on and off. It was Perfectly silent, except for a mechanical clock on the wall that was an old-fashioned thing in a big uh, wooden box, a bit like a miniature grandfather clock. And it had a pendulum, and it had a wind-up mechanism with a key that tightened a spring, and then, in the old-fashioned way of clocks, it would then click, clock, click, clock until it ran down. Now, as you might imagine, um, this didn't go down terribly well, particularly with the foreigners, who, um, on more, more than one occasion, uh, generously offered to the monastery, um, through. and we proposed this to the Zen teacher, that we would buy, with our own money, an electronic clock, one that made no, 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 no noise at all. And every time this was asked, the request was refused. Um, our teacher wouldn't hear of it. The clock stays. And what was his reason? His reason was, again, the same time each, uh, each time this was asked, The clock is teaching you a great lesson of the Dharma. With every click of the clock, your life is getting one second shorter. Bearing in mind the impermanence of life and the imminent approach of death, practice hard. End of discussion. Back to the room, back to the clock. And on it went. Now one might argue well all this is a bit petty wouldn't it have made sense to have just given in to this reasonable request so we could have a quieter environment in which to cultivate concentration and (coughs) focus and so on. I don't know what was behind our teacher's um, thinking uh, apart from what he said obviously but The way I would understand that now is that he was pointing to um, something in a way more important than having the perfect conditions for developing concentration. And what was more important was the basic question of our life that Zen meditation was primarily concerned to respond to. It's as though he didn't want to get us too caught up into the technique of meditation, but rather to always bear in mind why it was we were meditating in the first place. And this, I feel, is often what we lose sight of, the why. Why am I doing this? Why am I here? And again, I think it's something that um, each of us can fruitfully ask ourselves. Particularly if we find our meditation is going a little flat. If it's just going round in circles. If it's just you know running along quite comfortably but not really having that kind of inspiration or urgency it may have had once so as the foundation for uh, Buddhist meditation whether that be Theravada or Zen or Tibetan doesn't matter but the foundation I would um, suggest is what the Buddha called Dukkha parinya which means uh, fully know Dukkha. We might translate it as embrace Dukkha. That's the sort of ground um, of all uh, of the practices that we may subsequently do. So what is Dukkha? Dukkha, of course, is usually translated as suffering, but I think that is somewhat misleading Dukkha is just shorthand for what, in some contexts, we would call life. In the sense, for example, when something you know, unforeseen and unpleasant happens, um, we might say, well, you know, that's, that's life. In that sense, that's life. C'est la vie. In other words, life is like that. Life, in a sense, surprises us. Life lets us down. Things happen. Shit happens. That's life. So Dukkha is a way of, of just referring, I think, to that sense of life. In more philosophic language, we might understand Dukkha as meaning our total existential condition. In other words, as the Buddha himself defines dukkha, birth, sickness, aging, death. Uh, the inevitables of our existence, of having been thrown here at birth, finding ourselves here, being subject to breakdown, mental and physical, being subject to wearing down through old age, and at some point, we don't know when. Um, having to confront death, having to die, having to disappear. And that's in a, in a, in a way where this practice begins, in being able to say, yes, uh, this is um, where I am. This is the situation I find myself in. Uh, the way in which we take our lives seriously. We take the questions ...that life poses seriously. In Chinese there's an expression... uh, ...the great matter of birth and death. Uh, And that again is is another way of just summarising... ...what it is that the practice of Zen... um, ...is actually seeking to address. It's seeking to address the great matter of birth and death... Another expression the Buddha uses uh, in his first discourse to summarize what is meant by dukkha is um, the panchupadana kanda, uh, the five bundles of clinging or the five clinging bundles, sometimes translated as aggregates, materiality, feeling, perception, inclinations consciousness, which is one of the ways the early Buddhist tradition, as it were, carved up what is meant by our experience of life. There's something material and physical about it, there are sensory objects that we're constantly experiencing, there is an emotional tone to all experience, experience is intelligible, it makes sense, it's Um, differentiated by language, by ideas and life is also something that's constantly um, presenting us with opportunities to do something or say something Uh, we're constantly inclined towards action and at the same time we're aware, we're conscious of ourselves of the world, of others in a kind of seamless whole that we call vijnana. Or consciousness, and that is also Dukkha. I think in the Indian tradition they've perhaps given an emphasis onto Dukkha um, as part of belonging to a renunciant tradition which predated the Buddha. But I feel very much in, in the Chinese context that rather renunciant element tends to be less And in Zen and in other Chinese forms of Buddhism, uh, there's not quite the same degree of emphasis on how awful this world is that you sometimes get in early Buddhism, but rather simply an acceptance that this is life. And it presents and poses us with certain questions, certain deep questions that we seek to respond to through meditation. Now the next point I want to make is that meditation is not a technique or to be more precise meditation cannot be reduced to becoming proficient in certain techniques but rather meditation is um, a sensibility or um, an attitude if you wish or a perspective on life But of these terms, I rather like the word sensibility. In other words, this is a sort of subjective uh, reflex of the idea that what we're concerned about is life as a whole, our existence. And through meditation, we, as it were, attune ourselves or we um, cultivate a certain sensibility vis-à-vis or in relation to our life as a whole. And that's what I want to explore this evening. You know, what constitutes that sensibility? But I've noticed that it's uh, quite common nowadays that meditation is often presented as though um, it were a technique that we can master and become proficient in and good at and thereby use that technique to solve certain problems. And the way in which, for example, mindfulness is used in healthcare, uh, completely separated from any Buddhist context, is one in which it's found to be a quite effective technique in um, working with certain um, health um, problems. Uh, It can resolve them in some way. It can cure us of things that were previously causing us distress and pain. Now I think it's very natural for us in our um, Western civilization to adopt the idea that meditation is a kind of spiritual technology. Uh, I've often seen it written that just as the West has developed these technologies that have transformed the external world in the Asian traditions, in Buddhism, in Taoism, Hinduism. We find uh, comparable spiritual technologies that are able to transform the inner life of our experience. Uh, Now there is some truth to that. Um, I think clearly there are elements of this meditative sensibility that we can Uh, we can get better at we can learn how to become more concentrated through applying ourselves to certain exercises we can learn to become more mindful more attentive Um, I'm not disputing that at all but what I am questioning is that meditation as such as a response to our being in the world can be adequately thought of as just Being good at concentration, being good at mindfulness, being good at asking koans, or whatever the technique in question might be. I think we have to notice the extent to which the language of technology permeates much of our thinking and much of our language. Um, Buddhism, somehow, is sometimes presented as providing a path that leads to the solution of the problem of suffering. And that solution is called nirvana. Nirvana is quite literally the ending of suffering, the ending of of dukkha. And what it means is not getting born again. Now that is very much um, a problem-solving attitude. In other words, if you apply the technique correctly, then you will solve the problem of Dukkha, of of suffering. And that will result in that suffering no longer happening. And that's considered very often to be the goal of Buddhist practice. So even in its traditional presentations, it fits very nicely with um, a technological way of thinking about meditation. It's about applying a technique to solve a problem. I don't think this is helpful in... Um, confronting the fact of our existence, our birth, our sickness, our ageing and our death, as something problematic to be solved. I think it's more helpful um, to think of our life as a mystery which we seek to become more open to, in which we seek in a way uh, to penetrate more deeply, uh, to be more... um, Uh, accepting of and to not feel that by gaining insight we'll somehow resolve a problem or gain some final understanding of the absolute nature of reality or something. Again, I feel when we go back to the early uh, Pali texts, when we go back to the early Zen records, this technological language is really not so pronounced as it subsequently becomes as the traditions become more institutionalized, become more uh, bodies of expertise, as it were. So the question, therefore, um, is, well, if the the, the starting point of meditation practice is fully knowing dukkha, embracing life in its totality, then the question has to be, at some level, well, how do we do that? And yet to try to find a way of answering that question, how do I fully know Dukkha, without slipping into uh, the language of technical proficiency and expertise. And I would suggest there are three elements, three aspects of meditation that... um, I feel are very, very central to the practice, whatever form it might be. And I think are very much going beyond um, the idea of meditation as a technique. And the first would be to think of meditation um, as a kind of embodiment. In other words, when we sit, it's not just accidental that we're sitting in our bodies or that we're performing a particular posture or when we walk that we're just that's somehow accidental I think for many of us we find that despite all of our readings in Zen and Buddhism and Buddhist philosophy and Taoist ideas and so on when it actually comes to doing this in practice what we are brought up short against are the limitations of our own body. In other words, uh, we we, we become acutely aware, often in a way that's rather disagreeable, with um, a body that doesn't really want to do this, that doesn't want to sit for 30 minutes with painful knees or then get a funny, uncomfortable feeling in the lower back or um, whatever it might be. Or, of course, also to be kind of cooped up in this room uh, with a lot of other bodies and the mind kind of going berserk, wanting to be somewhere else. So meditation, I feel, is actually very centrally about um, embodying our our experience. And as we probably notice, um, we have a great resistance to this. Uh, The mind would much rather be remembering something in the past or planning for something in the future or simply just kind of drifting in a daydream or a fantasy or um, along some channel of associative thoughts which are perhaps very interesting but they're somehow avoiding being here embodied in this room in this experience just watching our breath. And so we find, for example, in the beginning of the Buddha's teaching on mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta, um, I'm quoting from me- memory, but the text basically says And a monk uh, goes into a forest and sits at the root of a tree or in an empty hut, and when he knows and he sets his back upright, and establishes mindfulness and when he knows and when he breathes out long he knows he's breathing out long when he breathes in long he knows he's breathing in long that's where the whole procedure the whole practice of embracing dukkha life begins and that's essentially what we're doing we're not in a forest quite we're not exactly an empty hut either, but it's good enough. We're in the country, we're in a space that's not used for anything else. And we sit and we watch our breath. And we don't just watch our breath, we experience ourselves breathing. We feel ourselves breathing. We, we become very um, alert, perhaps at times rather bored with the, the simple rhythm of our life. Inhaling and exhaling breath. We become aware of our heartbeat, we become aware of our pulse, we become aware of the warmth of our body. We're thrust, as it were, into an embodied experience. There's a passage I came across fairly recently in the Sangyuta Nikaya, which is in the Pali Canon, where the Buddha is asked, What meditation do you do when you sit in these long retreats in the rainy season in India? It's an obvious question. This is the Buddha. Very interesting to know what his practice was all about. And um, the Buddha replies, Well, if anybody asks that question, tell them that I dwell in concentration on mindfulness of breathing in other words a practice we consider you know preliminary perhaps or basic but here we have a very uh, a very clear affirmation for the for but for even, even for the buddha what he does when he sits is he stays with his breath he stays with his breathing and that's how he enters into a more focused and concentrated state but i don't think again it's being understood here as a technique for becoming more concentrated. I feel that what is um, revealed or disclosed through an intimate, embodied sense of breathing is in fact the great question of life and death. Because after all, the first thing we did on leaving our mother's womb was to gasp for breath and the last thing we do before we die, will be to breathe out. So the breath is actually the the living uh, thread of our very existence. It's what reminds us that we're alive. It's also that which connects us to the environment, the atmosphere, the world of plants, the biosphere of which we are an integral part. We now understand that much better than at the Buddhist time, how oxygen is generated. So the meditation on breathing is a meditation very much of embodiment and a return to uh, the primary arising and ceasing of the breath in each moment. The important thing I feel is that we return, we connect to something very embodied. Um, There's a famous statement by Dogen who says that if you sit correctly, if if your posture is, is, is exactly right, then you are already enlightened. Now again, a lot of commentary has been given to that idea, but I think The way I'd understand it, at least, is that um, to be awake, to be alert, to be responding authentically to the great matter of birth and death, we need to be totally embodied. And the posture in which we sit is part of that embodiment. If we're slouched or if we're tense, that somehow is a, 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 a reflex of a certain resistance or a certain laziness, a certain unwillingness to be totally physically there for what's going on. The next um, aspect of of meditation that I feel is at a similar level of um, importance um, is what we might call openness, a total openness to what's happening. We might call this um, uh, receptivity. In other words, um, this this primary embodied awareness of life is not just inward-looking. It's also opening to the world that is all around us. Um, It's a letting down of certain um, barriers. It's a allowing to drop away certain fixed ideas we have about me and who I am and how important I am. Um, Certain beliefs too perhaps, my Buddhist beliefs and my Zen beliefs. And and rather it's about finding uh, a still an open space in which we can allow the world to enter us. So becoming aware of of everything we put in the way, which is often our fixed ideas, our judgments, our preferences, our aversions, our fears, um, whatever gets in the way of being completely transparent to what's going on. And I think perhaps one of the best ways to, um, um, to represent this is in the idea of um, listening. I think that in many ways, and we get this quite strongly in Zen, we'll come back to it later in the week, um, is that perhaps the more appropriate metaphor, a sensory metaphor to use, um, is not that of the eyes, of looking at something, observing or watching, but rather a hearing and listening to what's going on. And just imagine for a few moments... What it's like to listen to something, like your a favourite piece of music. You know, you close your eyes, you um, you open yourself three hundred and sixty degrees to whatever is going to come in. There's a story in um, one of the Zen records where a monk and his uh, disciple are walking through a forest. And the disciple says, um, how do I enter into the great way? And the monk replies, the teacher replies, do you hear that waterfall over there? And the disciple says, yes. And then the monk says, right there. And we, we find uh, in a number of passages in the Zen records um, Uh, this emphasis on opening up our ears opening up our capacity to listen more carefully not just to become more aware of the sounds around us which I'm sure we already are becoming particularly the rooks (laughs) Um, that are making quite a bit of noise these days but also to refine as it were Uh, a sense of listening as perhaps a more useful metaphor than that of looking, of opening ourselves, of listening. And of course listening is also opening us to what is being said and particularly therefore what others are saying, other people, other forms of life that, um, you know, when people are having some struggle in their relationship, they'll ask, do you hear me? Can you really hear me? So when we listen, we're also, I think, opening ourselves up or, in a sense, letting down some of those barriers which um, prevent us from from really hearing what, in, in classical Buddhist language, are the cries of the world. Now that doesn't mean that we literally hear people crying in grief or agony, but it's rather about being um, opening ourselves to uh, the cry or the suffering of the other. So in this sense, meditation ceases to be a purely personal sort of, Inquiry. It really is about opening ourselves up to birth, sickness, aging, death, but recognizing that that's something that is the condition for all beings that live. Um, in the philosophy of uh, Emmanuel Levinas, he talks of how even when a person has not opened their mouth or said anything, they are, as it were, calling to us. That they're, as it were, saying silently, do not kill me. That this is somehow communicated through the very look of their face. So in other words, the, the encounter we have with other people, say, here on this retreat, or the managers, or whoever, or the rabbits, or the Rooks, In some sense the very presence, the very uh, transparency that meditation can open up allows us to bear witness to the suffering of their lives, of their sickness, ageing and death. So this I think moves us more towards an empathetic awareness. So again I would feel that the, 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 before we get into the technique of meditation there is this ground of, of an embodied awareness and then an open empathetic awareness. And then thirdly, I feel that at the core of meditation lies a sense of, uh, of wonderment a sense of astonishment, a sense of surprise that there is anything at all uh, rather than nothing. And it's quite common on any kind of retreat when we allow over a period of days um, many of our habitual ideas and thoughts and preoccupations and worries to start to just fall away that we suddenly are able to encounter our own bodies, our own experience in this space, our walks through the garden, through the nature, in which we are slightly um, amazed that this is happening. And it's not just an aesthetic liking of the primroses that have just come out although that's certainly part of it but it's a kind of capacity to um, be present with what's going as though it were the first time one had ever seen these things of course that's not the case but there is a sense uh, that's I think at the very heart of this kind of embodied openness in which we start to witness the world anew. One of the the very best um, accounts or descriptions that I've found of this is in um, a work called um, On the Nature of Things by the first century BC Roman poet Lucretius. Lucretius was um, a follower of Epicurus who lived about 250 years before he wrote this poem. And um, this is a passage from uh, On the Nature of Things. Behold the pure blue of heavens and all that they possess, the roving stars, the moon, the sun's light, brilliant and sublime. Imagine... If these were shown to men now for the very first time, suddenly, and with no warning, what could be declared more wondrous than these miracles no one before had dared believe could even exist? Nothing, nothing could be quite as remarkable as this. So wonderful would be the sight now, however, people hardly bother to lift their eyes to the glittering heavens. They are so accustomed to the skies. Now, this passage um, confirms for me that what this practice is about is not um, arriving at some insight into a greater truth that lies concealed, as it were, behind appearances. Um, And again, a lot of the literature, whether it be in Buddhism or in other traditions, which sort of lays some claim to being mystical, will very often speak a language of transcendence, whereby the mystic is the one who's somehow broken through to an experience that, is beyond words let's say of something utterly um, uh, other than the world we live in now and I think we're often a little conditioned by this kind of discourse whereas what is being said here and what I think comes through very strongly in Zen particularly is um, a return to the the specificity of sensory experience here and now. That we don't need to look any further than at what is actually happening. There's a, again, a fairly famous koan in which a monk asks, so why did Bodhidharma come from the West? Bodhidharma is the Indian monk who uh, is supposed to have introduced Zen Buddhism into China. And the answer, or one of the answers, but a very famous answer is, the cypress tree in the courtyard. Now, being a koan, obviously it can admit of many interpretations as to what that means. But the way I would understand it, at the moment, is that we're always Keen to know the answers to great and grandiose and ultimate questions. And that tendency removes us or distracts us, disembodies us into abstract thinking. Uh, into doctrinal speculations, into f- you know, rather dry academic speculation, beliefs. And the answer to the question, why did Bodhidharma come from the West, is the cypress tree in the courtyard. In other words, look at that tree. You know, th- not some special tree, the tree in the courtyard. That's why he came, to enable us to see that tree. Now, of course we could substitute it with, with any object. That tree is in no way sacred. But the point, I think, which comes home again and again is, you know, where is the great way? You hear the waterfall? Right there. What is enlightenment? A monk asks. And the teacher says, have you finished your lunch yet? And the monk says, yes. And the t- t- teacher says, okay, now go wash your bowl. So again, a refusal to get caught up into theories as to what enlightenment is but to concentrate and focus on the, the mundane the ordinary, the specific of what is actually happening in your own hands before your own eyes in your own ears right now and so that is both an embodiment it's an openness and it's also a quality of Surprise, of astonishment, of what we might call wonderment. This is from a Japanese Zen master of the 17th century called Takasui, or Takasui. I have no idea who he is. Um, I found it quoted in another book by um, the philosopher Nishitani. This is how uh, Takusui. Uh, describes uh, Zen practice. It says you must question deeply, again and again, asking yourself what the subject of hearing could be. Again, the sense of listening. Pay no attention to the various illusory thoughts and ideas that may occur to you, only question more and more deeply. Gathering together in yourself all the strength that is in you. Without aiming at anything or expecting anything in advance. Without intending to be enlightened. And without even intending not to be enlightened. Become like a child in your own breast. So, again, the image of a child, uh, to me at least, suggests this, um, uh, this innocence, this openness, this freshness of mind, um, which hasn't yet become encumbered with opinions and views and doctrines and beliefs, and sense of self-importance and so on. But this kind of, you know, just wonderment of the simplest things, the ability to be content with just looking at a blade of grass or something like that. So that would be, for me, the, uh, a description of the phenomenon of what meditation might look like if we unpack it before we begin any kind of meditation or practice or technique it seems to me we start with this response to the question of life and death, of trying to embrace our condition totally. And that can be um, um, achieved in some sense by being more embodied in our awareness. In other words, experiencing our life through our senses, through our bodies and through our minds being open and receptive to whatever is being presented, being empathetic more and more to the suffering of others. And at the same time, with this childlike sense of of, of wonder and surprise, uh, in the specific ordinariness of our breath, the rooks, the grasses... Whatever it is that is happening at any given moment. And I feel it's on that basis that we can then start talking about samatha and vipassana, stillness and insight, which are certainly the two um, main uh, cores of Buddhist meditation. Shamatha means those practices we use to become more still and focused and calm. It might be watching the breath, it might be listening to sounds, it might be focusing repeatedly on a question, like what is this that we'll introduce tomorrow. But whatever object we choose, by sustaining attention to it, we Become that much more centered and focused. But it's important, I feel, not to start there, but to ask ourselves, you know, what is it that is becoming more centered and focused? And I would argue it's an organism, a human being, confronting and questioning their own life from an embodied, open and deeply curious perspective that's the framework that's the the setting within which we can then train ourselves to be more calm and with vipassana a term that's again not the exclusive property of one school in buddhism but is used in the tibetan tradition the zen tradition Uh, Just as much. And it means insight. Vipassana, looking closely and carefully and deeply at something. And again, that looking closely, that focusing of attention, can also be done with regard to the breath, to the body, to sound, to what it is that we're questioning in a koan. In other words, shamatha and vipassana are, as it were, the more uh, technical aspects of meditation practice, particularly shamatha. That's something we can develop, something we can get better at, and something that's very important if we are to refine our embodied awareness, our openness and receptivity, our capacity for wonder... Shamatha is a kind of intensifier. And that stillness though, that focus, is again not the goal. That's again a, a means whereby we can then ask more, more acutely, perhaps more precisely. We can look more tentatively and closely and probingly and questioningly into this uh, fact of being here, and that is the practice of Vipassana and it has various different ways of being done in the different traditions so that 's all I want to um, uh, to say this evening. I hope that 's been helpful um, tomorrow morning i 'm going to um, introduce the question What is this but I feel that it was maybe useful to sketch the background in which I feel this question um, takes place. Um, We still have a little time. Would anyone have a question or a comment? Yes? Um, When you started speaking, you mentioned that meditation is a sensibility. And I didn't quite understand what you meant by this. Okay. Um, Well, what I tried to flesh out with the idea of meditation being something embodied, being a state of openness, being a state of wonderment, is that these are qualities that I would consider to be part of a sensibility. In other words, an overall attitude or perspective or, or, or sense of myself in relation to the experience of life. That's what I would consider to be a sensibility. Let's give an example. Um, If we think of meditation as a sensibility, then as we practice it, it's more akin to, say, developing an appreciation of art or developing an appreciation of literature or developing an appreciation for botany. In other words... It's not just something that we, we gain... It's not, we don't gain an appreciation of of literature, for example, by just reading lots of books. That is kind of necessary too. But it's the refinement of a certain awareness of how that art form is, 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 is working effectively, how it opens up, like a good novel opens up Another sensibility of life, in a way. Um, and it's something that we cultivate over time, usually with others, that takes, in, in a sense, many years. Maybe our whole lifetime, we'll continually be refining our appreciation of literature or art or nature. Um, and in doing that, there are certain things we'll have to learn and maybe get good at, um, reading or appreciating music but what is in a sense most deeply fulfilling about that process is the cultivation and the development of that sensibility it's not about getting some sudden literary enlightenment or or musical enlightenment Uh, and meditation I feel is, is more like that than it is about becoming proficient in a certain skill and then gaining some some whiz bang Result. So, you wouldn't compare it to developing a skill? Developing a skill is part of it. But um, uh, I would say that the developing of the skill is secondary. The developing of a skill is like develop, learning how to become more concentrated. I use the word technique. Becoming proficient in a technique is, in a sense, like developing a skill. And that is important, obviously. But the tr- what I was trying to point out is how because of our cultural conditioning, we often assume that being, you know, being ha- developing a skill is, is really all that really matters. And that will then produce a certain predictable result. And we sometimes, I think, lose sight of that rather more amorphous idea um, of, of, of a quality of experience, of a sensibility... Uh, something that's more organic, something that in a way, you know, emerges over time, often slowly in its own pace. Thank you. And happy birthday. A happy birthday. How does everybody know it's my birthday? <laughs> you must be the fifth person who I've never met before who's wished me a happy birthday. It's tab- I think it's Facebook It's the, is the culprit. Well, I, I don't get Facebook here, so... But Mark told us yesterday. All right. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, you said something like that uh, nirvana is not transcendent. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder does that also apply your opinion to the more Nibanic definition of, of Theravada tradition of, of fruition? Mm-hmm. <coughs> well um, Nirvana repeat is, the question, repeat the question. The question was about the nature of nirvana. And I think, I, and the listener had heard me say that um, uh, I didn't believe that nirvana was something transcendent. Um, that is correct. Uh, and I feel that that is um, quite um, clear from within the canonical texts of Theravada Buddhism. Uh, one of the classic definitions of Nibbana is um, ragakayo dosakaya mohakayo. The ending of greed, the ending of hatred, the ending of stupidity. That's nibbana. Um, and that is not necessarily something transcendent, is it? It's um, you see I think the problem is we get mixed up with nibbana as really those moments in life in which we are no longer driven or conditioned by, by greed, by hatred, by fear. Uh, when, we're no, when we're in a sense unconditioned by those things. Uh, moments in which we experience for ourselves a real a stopping of that kind of pattern of reactivity. And that stopping is Nibbana. Nibbana is just the stopping of those things. It doesn't have to be in any sense permanent. think These things can stop for a few moments and start up again. So in a way the cultivation of Nibbana is the cultivation of, of that spaciousness, that openness in our lives, which again goes back to what I was saying, although I didn't use the language of Nirvana. Um, and I feel it really as the, uh, the opening Um, of our minds and our hearts in a way that's uh, freed from the compulsive um, demands and uh, dictates of greed and hatred, particularly. Now, nirvana is often stated to be transcendent, but usually that refers to the fact that if you die as an arhant, as someone who has got rid of greed and hatred and delusion completely then when you, after death you won't get born again you enter into what's called Parinibbana the final nirvana which is not something that we can have any intelligible concept about so that aspect of Nibbana, yes we could call that transcendent but Nibbana is also something the Buddha says can be experienced in this very life, here and now. And in that sense, I don't think it's helpful to talk of it as transcendent, and there's no equivalent term in the Pali that I'm aware of. It would be helpful, perhaps, to speak of Nibbana as those moments in which we transcend greed and hatred and delusion but without positing uh, that state as being somehow transcendent. That's the problem. It's a linguistic problem. Um, And I think we're very drawn, and many writings on Buddhism reinforce this, that they set up these kind of ultimates like nirvana with a big N, or emptiness with a big E, or Buddha nature with a big B, as though this is some sort of ultimate truth. Now, Uh, That's precisely the sort of thing that a Zen master would hit you over the head (laughs) if you were to get involved in that sort of thinking. I think Zen, at its best, is um, a a rather um, uh, emphatic rejection of that kind of thinking altogether. I think Buddhism got stuck and continues to get stuck in these metaphysical ideas on which all of our values are projected. You know, the ultimate good, the ultimate truth. It's all in nirvana or in somewhere else. And instead, to bring attention back to the apparent banality and specificity of breathing in and out, of sitting on the cushion, of having pain in your knees, of hearing the rooks. That, I feel, is what the early Zen masters... Did And I think that's, to me, what is most um, appealing and most valuable in the Zen tradition. On this topic of uh, Uh transcendence, let's say there is a real opening, there's an opening to something something wonderful, something more real than that is. Then that could be an obstacle. Perhaps uh, Joshua replied, wash your bowl. It would also means forget your great experience. Forget. Forget all about it. Just uh, just be older Because you become a name. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, no, that would be a perfectly um, good way of reading that passage. Um, rather than attaching to some transcendent experience you might have had and it's true in, in meditation retreat you may have experiences that are kind of out of the ordinary um, I feel for the most part they're out of the ordinary because they're so different to what you're, you, you're used to I don't think they're out of the ordinary because they somehow exist in some other realm but as soon as we start conceptualizing them and privileging them and owning them as mine I had this incredible enlightenment experience on the retreat the other day, (laughs) as soon as you get into that, then you've kind of missed the point of what you were doing. You've become caught um, by, um, again, uh, the delusion of enlightenment, if you.